All right, so 1 Peter 3. Um, for those of you who, um, well, this is, this is called nerd time. So I hope you're ready. We're going to walk through this passage a little bit. I'm going to answer some questions with some possibilities and some potentials. I want to teach you uh, a few theological terms that are really, actually one theological phrase that is perhaps the most important theological phrase anybody could know. Uh, and, and you all can know it, and you're going to walk out of here encouraged just by that one theological phrase, I believe. Um, and so really what laid out the groundwork, I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to give you a little intro to the passage, what's been said about the passage, and then we're going to give you some options about what the passage could be meaning. Uh, and then for about the last 10 minutes of our time together, I'm actually going to preach. Um, so just to understand that, it'll be more teaching at the beginning and then, and then preaching at the end. I, I probably will get carried away. So let me read the passage and then <laughs> explain to you what is happening. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. You ready? Here we go. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Now, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. All right, so this passage is widely recognized as the most difficult to understand in the entire New Testament. So I love my job. Um, uh, here, let me read a few uh, words some theologians have shared about this passage. The meaning of this phrase is much disputed. Helpful. Uh, Peter's words were no doubt clear to those who first heard them, but they have been hard for later generations to understand. Martin Luther, I don't know if any of you study theology, Martin Luther is, I mean, he's not really one of my favorite guys to study, however, he is the most direct theologian in history, I believe. So if he read something that somebody said and he disagreed with them, Martin Luther would just be like, and this guy, he's a moron. I mean, there's, there's no doubt what Martin Luther thinks, okay? Martin Luther says this, <laughs> talking about this passage. This is a strange text, a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I just don't know for certain what Peter means. I cannot understand it. I cannot explain it. No one has explained it. You know what my job is, right? That's not too intimidating. And then my personal favorite, uh, my pastoral hero, uh, a man from the 1800s in, in England, his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great pastor of old, and making comments about this very passage, he says this, this passage nobody understands, though some think they do. So thanks, Chuck. That was encouraging. Um, so as you read through this, I'm going to throw answers to four important questions as you try to figure it out. I'm going to answer, well, I'm going to try to give you options to answer. When Jesus, uh, when did Jesus go? Who did Jesus go to? Where did he go? And what did he say? So the questions that I'm going to answer are when, who, where, and what. Um, I'll be honest with you, 
I've already tweaked my view on some of those answers uh, the last couple of weeks, not significantly, but a bit. Made another tweak between Friday and Saturday because I'm spending so much time in this passage here. I think I got (laughs) to, I don't know, this quote intimidates me. Um, I think I get it. I don't get it. I know I don't get it. Okay, so let's be honest. See this Bible? It weighs more than my brain does. So there is no way that I'm going to be able to fit the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, holy God inside my brain completely. And that's okay. See, I want to teach you a theological phrase. This theological phrase uh, could have saved me thousands of dollars in graduate school. I'm going to teach it to you. I want you to repeat it after me because it's vital that you understand this theological phrase. It's the most important theological phrase in all of theology. Are you ready? Repeat after me. I don't know. Now, you got to say it with some enthusiasm. I don't know. Because we don't know, and that's okay. It's important to understand that we don't know. One of my theology professors used to quote Deuteronomy 29, 29 all the time. It says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever so that we may follow All the words of this law. The idea is this. There are so many things about God that you can't understand. Don't make those your life. Don't become rabbit trail Christians who can't focus on the things that God has clearly commanded you to do, but instead you continue to chase the obscure, the minutia, the things that you can never understand. Those things belong to God. He has given you a a healthy dose of the things that he has revealed to you, and anything he has revealed clearly to you, you are responsible for. So be sure you're focused there, and be sure you're quick to admit when you don't know. Because, in honesty, we really don't know. This passage has more than 180 different exegetical combinations to explain it. And somehow I think I'm going to be the one that figures it out? Nope. Uh, Nope, not happening. So but I do have an opinion, just like everybody else. So I'm going to work through this. Be be encouraged, okay? These things, some of these things, aren't the most important. There are some things that, that are simply indisputable. There are some things that we just grasp onto, and there is no discussion about them because Scripture clearly teaches them. There are things such as the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, the the necessity of the sacrificial atonement for your sins, the literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those things we hold with closed fists, and no one will ever take them. They're indisputable. They don't change. Other things, they're more open-handed, not really for us to grasp onto, and so we let those go. This is one of those. I want to make sure you hear, before I start going through this, that even though I have an opinion I will be the first to admit I have no idea. You hear that, right? So so do me a favor then, a little pastoral encouragement and counsel for you. After the service today, whether it be with your family, you're driving in the car, you're like, you know, Frank, he has no idea what he's talking about that passage. You know what that passage means? It means this. If anybody around you says that, I want you to mock them. (laughs) Mock them. And that's not very pastoral, I know. Pray for them. No, mock them, okay? All right, so I'm going to walk through some of the options here. <laughs> um, and I'm going to try to do this quick, so just bear with me. These are options. Some of them, I think, are valid, 
and I just want to throw them out there for you to consider. Some of them are not valid, and some of those I'm going to park on for a few minutes because it gives me an opportunity to, to, to remind you of what Scripture actually teaches about some of those common ideas, okay? So here we go. So first one, when did Jesus go? We know he went. When did Jesus go? Because the context speaks about the time of Noah, many people think that he, was, uh, he went during Noah's day. So, so he went during Noah's day, and Jesus spoke through Noah, Okay, so many people think that. Many people think, that, and in fact, I would say most people believe that this occurred between the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it would explain what was happening during those days that, that Jesus' body was in the tomb. His soul went and did these, these things. Um, others believe, and I would put myself in this others category, that this occurred between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Here's, just from this passage, let me just point this out to you so that you know why I think this. Um, verse 18, it talks about how Christ suffered. Then it says he was put to death. Then it says he was made alive. And then if you get down to verse 22, it says then he ascended. He was gone into heaven. So you kind of have a chronological timeline showing up in this passage. So because of that, I would see everything that happens from the ver- end of verse 18 to verse 22 being crunched into that middle time period between the resurrection and the ascension. Let me be completely clear. It doesn't matter right? This is one of those things we're going to get to heaven and be like, so when did you do that? And his answer will blow our minds, right? So, so just understand that. So, but when I answer when, that's where, where I land, and those are some of the other options. Like I said, we're going to move through this so I can get to the point. Who did he go to? Who did he go to? It says here, uh, he was put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in heaven who were in the past disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Who did he go to? Who were these spirits that were in prison? Some believe that it was Noah's neighbors, those who Noah preached the message to. Rain's coming, I'm building a boat, you got to get in the boat. And when it talks about them being in prison, it's not a literal prison. It was a figurative prison, living within the prison of their own sin. Okay, so that's one option. Uh, another one are Noah's neighbors. The souls, let me, let me clarify that one. The souls of Noah's neighbors who are now experiencing the torment of hell because of their lack of repentance during the days of Noah. Um, some believe that Jesus went to the fallen angels. Now, talk about another hour and a half I don't have, okay? Who are the fallen angels? Well, you go to Jude chapter 6, or sorry, Jude verse 6. And it talks about those angels who stepped beyond the boundaries that God had created for them and were judged and as a result are kept in chains uh, in a prison uh, until the time of judgment. Many believe those fallen angels of Jude 6 are referring to, this is going to blow your mind, Genesis 6, just before the time of Noah, which is why many believe it was fallen angels. When, when um, Moses, in telling us about the history of, of humanity before the flood, talks about when the sons of God and the daughters of men were in relationships and having children, and they believe that the sons of God are actually fallen angels. And and so God came to judge the earth through the flood of Noah. That's part of the reason. And so the people that Jesus went to are some of these fallen angels in, in one of those camps. Anybody else's head hurt yet? All right, good. It's about to get a little, it's not easier. It'd say easier, but that's not true. <laughs> that would be lying, and that's not good to do. Um, where did Jesus go? So we talked about when did he go. We talked about who he went to, but where did he go? 
All right, here you go. So you got Noah's neighborhood. So perhaps he went to Noah's neighborhood during the time of Noah. He went to the place of the dead, Hades. Um, one option that I'm going to explain and then make very clear it is not an option is this place that we have heard of called purgatory. All right, I want to I make sure you, you understand this. This is an opportunity for me to speak about this. Purgatory is never found in Scripture. And the concept of purgatory, as we understand it, has not been defined by theologians of Scripture. It's been defined by the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church defines purgatory in its catechism. And so I can't read scripture for you because it's not there, but I can read the Roman Catholic Catechism of 2005, two particular sections, section 210 and section 211, if you want to look it up for yourself afterwards, speak directly about the Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory. And many people hearing this teaching of purgatory believe, then they read into it, like, oh, that's where Jesus went to purgatory. So let me, let me read to you those sections of the Catechism so you understand what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching. And then let me explain to you why it's not a valid option in this situation, um, or any situation. So section 210 says this. What is purgatory? Purgatory is the state of those who die in God's friendship, assured of their eternal salvation, but who still have need of purification to enter into the happiness of heaven. The state of those who die in God's friendship, assured of their eternal salvation, but still have need of purification to enter into the happiness of heaven. Okay, let that just kind of roll around in your noodle a little bit. See if anything sounds a little out of whack with what uh, Scripture teaches. And then let me read section 211 to you. How can we help the souls who are being purified in purgatory? says this, because of the communion of the saints, the faithful who are still pilgrims on earth are able to help the souls in purgatory by offering prayers in suffrage for them, especially the Eucharistic sacrifice. They also help them by almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance. Now, let me explain to you why purgatory is not an option. Purgatory is never an option because purgatory isn't a place. Purgatory is an anti-biblical teaching. In fact, I would say it's not just anti-Christian, it would be anti-Jesus. The picture of purgatory is this. They have been made okay with God. Now they have died and they're here and they're assured that they're certainly going to have eternal salvation, but they have to have help to clear that last hurdle to get into the happiness of heaven, as it says. How will they clear that last hurdle? Well, you. You're going to help them clear that last hurdle. Your works of prayer and following the Eucharistic sacrifice and giving finances through indulgences um, and um, penance and, and an almsgiving, you give those things or do those acts, that's going to help those people clear that last hurdle. It completely disregards and cheapens the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There, there's only one way to peace with God. There's only one way to relationship with God. There's only one way to be brought into his presence, and it's explained to us in verse 18. Christ also suffered for sins once for all. 
He doesn't need to be sacrificed time over and time over and time over again. That's what the Eucharistic sacrifice does. It continues to put Jesus to death in order to hope that it's enough to get them to clear that last hurdle. Jesus suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Purgatory is an anti-Jesus teaching. So that's not an option. Where did Jesus go? This one always gives me like, when you say it. Did he go to hell? Did Jesus go to hell? This is a view that particularly was made, I'm going to say made popular. Understand how I say this. It, it, It reached a level of popularity it didn't have before. In 400 AD, when people added to the Apostles' Creed, Um, This this statement, he suffered, he died, he was buried, and he descended into hell. So some believe that they're referring to the grave when they say that. Some find this an inaccurate statement because Jesus couldn't possibly go to hell. Some people ignore it altogether and pretend like it's not there. So again, I don't know for real. I know what I believe, and I'll tell you about that in a few minutes. Um, But what we do know and must understand is if Jesus descended into hell, he was never tormented. That cannot happen. Jesus is in complete control and sovereign even over hell. He doesn't fall victim to the torment that comes through hell. So we need to grasp onto that. Some believe that Jesus went to the place that is mentioned in Luke chapter 16, the discussion between the rich man and Lazarus. Um, And if you remember, the rich man uh, was in Hades. Lazarus was in Abraham's side. And so it's the picture of the sinner and the saint. So so the rich man being in Hades calls out across the the, the great gulf that is fixed between those two places. And and Lazarus, uh, in, in Abraham's side, overhears his cry, and his cry was simply this. Would you please, first of all, just take a finger and put it in water and touch it to my tongue. That's how much torment I'm in. Secondly, would you please allow someone, anyone, to come back from the dead to explain to my family and to my friends the, the, the reality of this torment and the need to find rescue from it. And you know Jesus' response to him was quite, quite ironic being on this side of the cross. Even if somebody came back from the dead, they'll never believe So, so, so is this where Jesus went? Did he go to that place where somehow communication can happen across that gulf? And then others believe it's wherever that prison is. And I like the idea of, I don't know, wherever that is. Wherever the prison is for the fallen angels that's spoken of in Jude 6. All right, one last nerd question. You ready? You're remembering this verse, right? Okay, here we go. What did he proclaim? What did he proclaim? It says that he was, uh, he was made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits who were in prison. What did he proclaim? If he went to Noah's neighbors at Noah's home, his proclamation was, repent and get in the boat. Okay? If he went to those who have already died or who exist in purgatory, according to that teaching, he's claiming, he's declaring, repent. This is your opportunity to repent. But there is a fundamental problem with that. The fundamental problem with that is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, where it says this, And just as it's appointed for people to die once, after this comes judgment. There's no second chance. There's no second chance. 
which is what makes this so significant and important that we wrestle with. We'll talk about that in a moment. So, so it's, it's not that. Another option of proclamation is he proclaimed a message of future judgment or he announced a message of victory. And that could be because that word proclamation isn't always the preaching of the gospel. It can also be uh, the message of a herald who is running into the city to declare to the city the good news that the army has won the battle. And now because the army has been victorious, the people of the city can live in peace and in freedom. And so he's declaring the message of victory so that they all know. So, all right, now that I've confused you enough, my view in this moment, which may change tomorrow, I don't know, uh, is this, that between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus went to the place where the souls of the men and women who lived during Noah's time are being held. And Jesus is loudly proclaiming over them his victory over sin, death, the grave, and them. I think that ties together some of the ideas that we talked about last week in verse 16. The idea of shame not being just this emotional, I'm so embarrassed, but shame being what comes when you lose. So I think Peter ties that in. Okay, so just when you think you're done, right? When you work through that, you still got Charles Spurgeon's quote like staring at you. This passage nobody understands, though some people might think they do, Frank. And you finally get to the place, you're like, I think I got this. Then you go to read verse 21, you're like, thanks, Peter. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Oh, come on. What? That's the one thing that we say every time we do a baptism. Okay, the water isn't saving anybody. What's he possibly talking about? Well, it's almost as if Peter senses the questions that are going to come, and immediately he seeks to clarify. And he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, talking about Noah, the flood, that stuff, now saves you. Wait, not, not as the removal of dirt from the body. It doesn't wash any sin off of you. It doesn't cleanse you that way, but the pledge or the appeal or the visible commitment of a good conscience toward God. But what, what he's talking about with baptism is it's an appeal, a pledge, a, a visible commitment to taking God at his word. Let me explain that a little bit to you by trying to give you the connection between Noah and baptism and that. So, so ask yourself the question, did the ark save Noah and his family? Okay, so picture this. So it's Saturday night. Noah has been working for a very long time, more than a year, building this ark. He's exhausted. It's finally done. Can you imagine the relief of having that project done? It's finally done. He kicks back with his family, eats a big meal to celebrate. He's kind of staring off into space in his rocking chair. He says, you know what? <laughs> I ain't buying it. I don't think there's flood coming. Does the ark save him right then? No. It doesn't. See, see what, what you have to understand is without faith in the very promise of God, there is no deliverance for Noah from the judgment that's going to come. You've got to believe the promise to get into the ark. You've got to believe rain is coming, flood is coming, God has provided a way of escape, and then you lock yourself and your family in the ark in order to escape. Getting in the ark 
is not what saved them. Getting in the ark, what was the confession of their faith visibly to those around that they had put their trust in the promise and escape that God had provided for them. Does baptism save us from our sins? No, God saved us from our sins by grace. Baptism is an evidence that we have already taken God at his word. We have believed his promises. It's a picture of our faith in God and in his word. The people who follow Jesus in baptism are making a public appeal, a confession of what they've already done. They believed God's promise of rescue, so they jumped into the boat of baptism. So, So... Now I get to do what I'm more comfortable with. What is the point of all this? So if I was to take verses 18 to 22 and and, and navigate through all the complicated biblical theology, the the interpretation needs that are there, um, not get lost in almost like the matrix idea that Peter throws down here. So what? So let me admit before I go through this, what I'm about to share with you really is a result of my, right now, where I stand in interpreting this text. Again, I will admit fully, I'm probably wrong at some point. I'm okay with that. My interpretation of this text and the way I'm going to apply it this morning fits biblical theology elsewhere, not just in this text. I believe we cannot lose sight of the fact that the people that Peter is speaking to have been going through great suffering, great difficulty, huge persecution. The people that Peter is speaking to is a, the people who is surrounded by a majority of the population who have rejected Jesus and rejected them. Sound familiar at all? And, and, and even in the middle of all this complicated stuff, Peter's main point is quite simple. If you're a note taker, here it comes. This is the point. So if you want to write it down, knock yourself out. Very detailed, but kind of brief. <laughs> Jesus wins. That's it. Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, so do we. So so listen, I know, everybody's a little bit different. While every single one of us in this room, at some point or another in a very recent history, has gone through some incredibly difficult times. Some of you are currently going through some incredibly difficult times. Some of you are suffering, mocking, and persecution because you are clinging to Jesus first and foremost. What you need to be reminded of is this. Jesus Christ was willing to suffer for you. Verse 18 is, is, for all the theology that you talk about, Verse 18 is one of the most theological verses in all of Scripture and is one of the most simplest to understand. It gives us a picture of the substitutionary atonement in a way that we just we want to understand. Look at verse 18. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. In all of the difficulty, child of God, if you are following Jesus Christ and you have placed your faith in him, what you need to remember is Jesus Christ was willing to suffer for you. And in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, what he has done has made it possible for you and God to be reconciled in relationship. So so with all the chaotic stuff going on around you, what you must remember is that through Jesus Christ, the exchange is complete. His righteousness has been traded for your unrighteousness. 
And as you go through it, as you wrestle with the mocking and the persecution and clinging to Jesus and people kind of raining down on you, the, the jokes, what you need to remember is you're not the first one to go through it. In fact, it should remind you of somebody else named Noah who was called to build a boat to escape God's coming judgment. And as Noah built the boat, he was mocked. Everybody rejected the message of salvation. Multitudes of people brought persecution, so much so that through the time he was building the boat and being a testimony to those who would watch, preaching the gospel of escape, the gospel that God has provided a way, as he did all of that, no one responded. It was only him and his seven other family members that got in the boat. I know you feel alone sometimes. I do. And get out there and, and I, I want to I be accepted too. But I want you to remember something and be encouraged. That after Jesus was risen from the dead, he made it a point to go stand before those who rejected the message of salvation as preached by Noah. Those who had died in the flood because they refused to hear the message of deliverance that Noah was bringing. Jesus Christ went and stood before those who rejected the offer of salvation that God had presented to them. The ones who refused to get in the boat. And he declared victory. Jesus stood before those who rejected him, and he had his arms raised as the champion. I don't know if you've ever watched any boxing or um, even wrestling, college wrestling or Olympic wrestling or any of those things. So, so after the great battle happens, even after one of the wrestler or the boxers has won, they, they come to the middle of the mat, and the referee stands between them, and he holds both their wrists, not just one, both. And the announcement is made who won, and the ref raises his hand, and the one who's victorious gets to celebrate his victory, while the one who loses has to stand there in shame. Not disgrace and embarrassment, but after being conquered. And usually what you'll find is they can't make eye contact with anybody. They're like... Child of God, know this. That Jesus Christ, the champion, stood before those who denied him and celebrated his victory. Verse 22, it wasn't just the people of Noah's day. Verse 22, he's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. He is victorious over all. And Noah and his family and you and the church universal can celebrate in this victory because they have been rescued. They escaped because they responded to the call of salvation, the response that took God at his word and followed his plan. They took God at his word. It's about to rain. And they followed his plan. They got in the boat. It's so similar to your experience in Jesus Christ. It's so similar to the picture of your baptism. 
Because you at one time, as a child of God, at one time, you heard that you were separated from God because of your sin, because of your unrighteousness. You heard that if you died in that separation, that there would be judgment coming for you that you could do nothing about. You heard that Jesus Christ suffered for you in your place so that you could be made right in relationship with God. And as a child of God, you embraced that answer that God loves you and sent his son to rescue you. And so hearing that you you let go of everything else you've been clinging to and, and you hold on to the only way, truth, and life, Jesus Christ himself. And as you followed Jesus in obedience by being baptized, you declared, like, like Noah did, that you are taking God at his word and you're outwardly committing to what happened inwardly. You're demonstrating for everybody to see that you have trusted God's plan of rescue, Jesus Christ. I do know there are people here who have not trusted that plan. Um, They've rejected it. Uh, or, Or maybe some of them have chosen to not lean on Jesus and Jesus alone, but instead they've put their hope in themselves and what they can accomplish. That it'll be good enough. I mean, you, you may not be just publicly saying out loud, it's not going to rain. But you're certainly not hearing God's clear word that there is coming a day when you will stand before God. And when you stand before God, you will be judged on one of two things. You will either be judged on your merit or you will be judged on Jesus' merit. And I know it hasn't rained yet. But don't look at that as a non-fulfillment of a promise. Look at that as God's patience for you. So every day that God does not return, simply him extending a little patience towards you, but some day, just like like the patience of God expired in the story of Noah when the, the clouds broke open and the rain began to fall, someday the patience of God will expire, the clouds will break open, and the lion of Judah, the mighty conqueror, will be standing there. And there are two very different responses to his return. If you're in the boat, it is a celebration and your arms get raised in victory. But if you have rejected and said, it ain't raining yet, there is eternity in the damning fires of hell. If you have not responded to the plan of God for escape and rescue. Repent. Call on his name. Trust in Jesus' work on the cross and his powerful resurrection to save you from your sin. For those of you who have taken God at his word and accepted his offer of salvation, you get to live in light of this glorious victory. So I know it's difficult, but be encouraged. That same Jesus, the conquering, exalted, victorious champion, is our deliverer, our rescuer, and he's our hope. 
And his work on the cross is forever perfected for all time. You just need to know that Jesus wins. And you will too, because his victory is yours. And and so, (laughs) I think this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, because that's what pastors do. I have no idea where everything else is going in our world. Not a clue. I have, I mean, I, I could hazard a guess, but I'll be wrong. So where does, this, where does COVID take us? The political landscape, the, the social, political unrest, the racial unrest. I, I have no idea. But what I do know is that Jesus wins. I do know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That I know. That I know. And that tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord looks very different depending on if you're in the boat or not in the boat. Because if you're in the boat, it sounds like a symphony of praise, worship, adoration, and thanksgiving. As we celebrate the fact that we understand finally and fully what it means when Jesus exclaimed from the cross, it's finished. Because what Jesus accomplished on the cross truly is finished, and it is finished for all time. And we get to reap the benefits. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for challenging and difficult texts that we have to wrestle with. Thank you that we can cling to you in, that t- in those uh, passages and, and seek your face. Thank you that your word is clear and, and continues to point to Christ and him crucified. Thank you that we have full forgiveness through Jesus. Thank you that the work of the cross was enough. I pray, Father, that if there are people here this morning who have not placed their trust in Christ and in Christ alone, that in this moment you would allow them to have the humility they need to fall on their faces and simply cry out with their mouth what their lives have demonstrated every day, that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to save them from their sins, that he willingly suffered in their place, giving them his righteousness and guaranteeing it when he rose from the dead. Lord, please, I pray, give us a fresh understanding of what it means that you finished our salvation, that it's made complete and final in the work of the cross. God, open our eyes in the days of discouragement. Remind us that Jesus wins. It's in his matchless name I pray. Amen.